Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. How you doing? You had a lot of going on today. You were driving all around LA. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to take care of myself, doing self-care. Very important. Uh, I drive to see my chiropractor, who happens to be where I used to live, so it's a long drive. And uh, I'm starting to go back to that because I'm realizing that a lot of my aches and pains are sort of wear and tear and self-inflicted on my posture and my old injury, my old knee surgery, my old back injury. So I'm trying to learn things to correct it. So I go to Pilates once a week. I see the chiropractor once a week. And then I go to my horses for my brain, <laughs> brain, brain release. Yeah. Um, and then and, we're, and, we're, and some natural love and right. sunshine and beauty. It's really pretty up there. Yeah. It's been great. And the weather's been great. Hey, in SoCal. If you guys saw um, our most recent pictures, we took those pictures up at the ranch, at the ranch. where Sue's keeps his horses with permission. Oh, with permission. Yes. <laughs> That's important, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we always have to get permission. You don't mind driving, though, huh? We gave, we gave the owners informed consent. Which is a little, what do you call that? Foreshadowing. Teaser. It's a teaser. <laughs> For our, um, topic. our topic today. Right. We'll get to that. We got some other things we want to talk right. about. Right, so did you want to, uh, you want to start with a review, maybe? You want me to read the review? Yeah. Okay, great. Right. So, here's a review. Um, or should I preview what we're going to do today? I want to hear more we're, about your week. We're, we're catching the new formats, you see, because because we were talking about the uh, the intro. Yeah. And you said, yeah, we didn't sound like us, really. It sounds a little bit, you said stiff, I think. It's a little stiff. Yeah. But we're a little more fun than that. I know that, but yeah, we'll we're, get there. we're reading a script. Yeah. It's not it's not improvised every week. Like I used to just yeah. do it off the cuff. We'll be so improvised I Screw it up a few times. Every now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like the way you say, hello. Hello. Yeah. I noticed when we were recording it. Hello. Oh, you like that? So that's the part you like. The rest of it is too stiff. <laughs> okay. So here's a review. Uh, this Hopefully this is inspiration for you guys to write more reviews because that's how people find us. And uh, Stu and I, when we read like formatted podcasts, one of the things that we talked about was, you know, who do we want to reach? And Stu said this great thing. He's like, every woman everywhere across the world. And I got really inspired by that. I was like, probably won't happen, but that's a big game, right? Like we really want to touch a lot of lives. Well, birth touches everybody. This is true. Okay. And it's universal. I mean, even people who are single, all right, they know somebody who has a baby. Yeah. Or is going to get pregnant or is a reproductive age yeah. or whatever. And yeah. so, yeah. and what we've done in our in our country and in most of the Western world, and actually most of the world, though, is we've taken this natural, beautiful thing and we've turned it into something mechanical, medical, stiff. It's stiff. It's stiff. Our <laughs> intro is stiff, like <laughs> medicine. Like the, like the burning world. Right. We'll keep working on it. Yeah, that's the word for the day, I guess. So, um, write that down. <laughs> this is from Ellen, and it was back in January, and she said, The podcast is Chef's Kiss. Perfect. Dr. Stu and Bliss approach to medical pregnancy care is the perfect balance of science and nature and empathy and empowerment and research. That's a lot of ands. And humor. She <laughs> forgot humor. <laughs> this is her. This is her 
know, I know. Um, in the format of a casual chat, I leave each episode feeling warm, empowered, and well-informed. They care about their listeners in a way that feels personal, grateful for them and their mission. Thank you. Ellen. P.S. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it, that, that she captured it better than I could say, but that's true. <laughs> it's better that someone else. That's true. It. We wouldn't do what we do the way we do it. <laughs> Not just our podcast, but the way you, you know, like that birth we talked about last podcast of um, the way you do these sorts of things without really, really caring. And even, and maybe this will segue right into the, the birth that I didn't have this week. Um, I got a really nice compliment from the father even though, you know, because just the way we communicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the way we communicate partially is innate in our own skill, but partially it's, it's part of the, uh, the midwifery model where you have the time to do that. But interpersonal communication and, and, and I would say social IQ, if there's such a thing, you know, it's social. Oh IQ. yeah. Right. There is yeah. such a thing. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I don't know how you scale it Emotional or something like intelligence. that. Yeah. yeah. But even mm-hmm. social IQ, how to, how to mingle, how to, carry on a conversation where you don't dominate, where you're not the, where you, you, you know, people are looking at you like, oh, what that guy shut up. Oh, <laughs> guy just shut up. He doesn't, doesn't he know that he's like stupid, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Annoying. I mean, I may have that periodically because sometimes I do go on a rant, but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I might have some self-awareness issues that I'm working on, but that's self-aware that I know that I might have some self-awareness issues. So that's a good thing, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Versus so, awareness. Right. So, um, but we do, I think that you and I, and a lot of our colleagues who practice in this model have a high social IQ and a high ability to, to communicate that sense of warmth. Whereas a lot of my colleagues who are in the medical model may very well be that warm, loving person in a social situation with their family, but the model itself that they're practicing and doesn't allow them to yeah. achieve that. Yeah. And they've forgotten, you know, it sort of gets back to my old, favorite thing when I say what mammals know and we've forgotten and it's sort of we have forgotten a lot of the things that make humans human in our profession yeah so let me just tell you a little bit about the birth that I didn't have okay this week because because it brings up a dilemma and um okay so here in California we have the 42-week rule people have heard us talk about that (laughs) yeah since 2014 when midwives got autonomy somewhat autonomy in the state they (laughs) they gave up the 37 before 37 weeks after 42 weeks, breaches and twins. Yeah, probably yeah. those are the main things. Yeah. I went to do a home visit yesterday mm-hmm. and she turned 37 weeks and she goes, I felt so relieved today because it's not now it's legal for me to have my baby mm-hmm. at home. And I was like, right. well, it's legal for you to have your baby at home. I just couldn't come, which is the dumbest thing. It ever. is the dumbest thing. And what do you do when someone's in labor at 36 and five days? You know, why did they come up with an art? Well, that's another yeah. topic, you know, another, I'll, time. I'll, another time I will have my, I'll lose my social IQ by going <laughs> off on a tangent there. So, um, so this is a case where a midwife uh, sent somebody to me at 41 weeks and four days or five days for post-dates testing and to have the conversation that what happens if they go beyond 42 weeks. But the problem with this particular client is that they were perfectly lovely people, but they didn't really have prenatal care early and their dates were really questionable. She had irregular periods. Mm-hmm. So there was a question whether she was 41 weeks in four days or 43 weeks or anywhere in between. So we, no one really knew. And when I saw them, they had a perfectly normal biophysical profile and NST reactive 10 out of 10 
score, normal estimated feet of weight, normal vital signs, no signs of any problems. But she's 41 weeks in four or five days. I didn't get to know them as well as the midwife got to know them. But when she got to 42 weeks, in the days coming up to that, the midwife had tried a few things like membrane sweeping, castor oil, not because they absolutely had to do that, but because they were okay with it. And economically, it more, made more sense because if they got down 42 weeks, then they'd have to theoretically hire me and pay me. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, she got to 42 weeks. She was not in labor. And the midwife calls me and she says, you know, I'm not really comfortable going beyond this point, even with you on board. And so I- Because I'm, of this particular client? Because or? of this particular mm-hmm. client's unknown dates. Mm-hmm. And could she be 43? Could she be 44? I mean, it's unlikely just by random chance, but it could be. So she got very uncomfortable. And so she sort of abandoned. I mean, I guess the ban is not the right word, but she sort of just let them know that she wasn't comfortable. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, okay, are they going to come into care with me who are people I've met one time? Mm-hmm. And I have to hire a whole new team who they've never met. Mm-hmm. And that's antithetical to the midwifery model of care, which is continuity of continuity care, of care mm-hmm. comfort, safety, relationships, mm-hmm. don't have it. So I felt she had an alternative. She had Paul Crane, who's a physician in our community, wonderful, who um, was willing to take care of her in the hospital if she went into labor. And he tested her on, at 42 weeks and one day in his office, and she was fine. So they were going to continue. But that... I didn't feel comfortable taking them on at that late date, not really knowing really anything about them, no way to look back at their history and figure it out because they didn't have an ultrasound in the first trimester. They didn't have a last menstrual period that was accurate. And, you know, we're in the home birth world. And if the midwife herself is feeling uncomfortable and the midwives in this community, I trust really, really well. Mm-hmm. I have to trust them because every time I take on a breach at, late in the pregnancy or, or a 42 weeker, I'm trusting that their relationship is the thing that's bonding. And I'm just kind of coming on yeah. my couch position and that yeah. sort of thing, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. So if she's feeling uncomfortable, that made me feel uncomfortable, not enough to take them on at that point. It didn't give you comfort. And, I, and, and we had a great, I had a great uh, conversation with the, with the husband who was very, Frustrated with the system, you yeah. used four-letter words. Oh, yeah. Um, I get it. But understood it. And he it was very thankful and grateful for the, the opportunity to offer that sort of thing that 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 I do, that midwives do. He understood where the midwife was coming from, although he was not happy with that s- scenario. Mm-hmm. And he just said that the whole system really sucks, that he, that he now has to have his, his wife and his baby have to be born in a hospital setting. If they don't prefer that, yeah. Well, yeah, because there's no other option because no midwife in California can suddenly take them on. They're beyond 42 weeks. This is true. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was, it's a, it's a dilemma for those of us that really want to help people, but we also have to keep our practice going and we have to go with our gut feeling. And if the gut feeling of the midwife for me wasn't comf- was uncomfortable, that puts me in a, in a position because I rely on their comfort zone to be able to jump on. And I, and I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming that if we didn't live in such a litigious culture where you could lose your license and, and be blamed for 
something happening and all of that. But if this woman came in, you know, different situation, any other situation, and she was test, the baby was testing fine, that you would not necessarily have the same thing. I wouldn't. Uh, yeah. You're exact, you're 100 yeah. percent correct. Yeah. It's because of the 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 feeling that you have, just like your patient said earlier, I'm 37 weeks now. I can legally have my baby. I can legally have my baby. I mean, we have this sense of foreboding, the sense of fear, the sense of big brothers standing over us. And and again, this is what it gets back to my my advice to my four children. I've, I've said it on the podcast before, like any parent, I say, find a job that you love doing. But the second thing was always, don't be licensed by the state to do it. <laughs> don't do what I do. Yes. Don't do what I do. I mean, a lot of people want their kids to grow up and be physicians. And and if they're physicians, they want their kids to follow in their footsteps or something like that, or lawyers follow in their footsteps. But I didn't want my kids to be burdened by the, by the pressures that you feel mm. when, if you do something that might be questionable, like get a DUI. Mm. You or I would, could lose our license, and certainly we'd be uh, we'd be in trouble with the medical board. Well, I hope that we wouldn't be getting a DUI for many other reasons besides that. No, but it happens sometimes. You're coming back from a, no, a, a party. Not. No, I really? hope not. Yeah, uh, yeah, really. <laughs> hey, I've been with midwives sometimes. You guys do. You guys can party. All right. So anyway, I'm just saying that. But if you work for Nordstroms or you work uh, in the entertainment industry and you get yeah. a DUI, you go to work the next day. No one, no one's any the wiser. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that everybody should love their work as much as I love my work. So I can't say that I wouldn't want people to do what I do because I, maybe I'm crazy. I just, no, but wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice if that, that, that you, you were self-reliant and self and self-responsible and didn't have yeah. to kowtow oh, yeah. to uh, people who sit in little cubicles and decide your fate. Yeah. They don't really care about you. They certainly don't care about people they're supposedly serving. Yeah. Because if they did, they wouldn't take away things that you could do for them because the, the 2014 law did not benefit the women of California. No, no, <laughs> right. not the ones who want our care. Right. For, for sure. I mean, yeah. you have so many women who are, they're getting their cervixes swept and drinking castor oil at 41 weeks and five days. You would never be doing that if you didn't have the 42 week law. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, so, horse, that horse is beaten. That horse is beaten. So, um, you know, Chelsea Pollo, I can never pronounce her. No, name. but I do eat at El Pollo Loco sometimes. <laughs> you do know her. She's, <laughs> com- she's coming into your care again. You've done ultrasounds yes, for her. Uh, um, she's a local, Chelsea's a local um, doula. I mean, a local IBCLC and her. Um, what is an IBCLC for those people that are listening? International Board Certified Lactation Consultant, right? Something like that. IBCLC, yeah. yeah. Um, and her her Instagram handle is Milk and the Moon. She's awesome. She had her videos are so entertaining and hilarious. But she sent us. So she'll be in the show notes then. Yeah, we'll okay. put her link in the show notes. So she sent me this me- this direct message. She says. Um, I dreamt (laughs) you and Dr. Stewart at a finance meeting in my living room. When my labor started, baby was out in 15 minutes. So I handed her to you and Stu so I could go shower and find my husband. Most random thing ever made me think that I should say hi and maybe schedule my anatomy scan. (laughs) Is she your client? No, no. She's, she's a fan. She's a fan and you've seen her before in your office. I think she's Beth's client. 
okay. Yeah, she's All coming right. to see you soon. Okay. Um, but I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. People are even dreaming about us, too. We were having a finance meeting in her living room, and then she had her baby. Well, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a um, PG-rated dream yeah. <laughs> in, her, in, in her living room. Um, yeah, I had a weird dream last night, but I can't remember it. Other than this kid I grew up with, his kid was either getting bar mitzvahed or married. And I was asked to do some honor at the bar mitzvah or the merit or the wedding. But I was, I forgot, to, I was dressed in a suit, in a tie and a suit top. But I forgot to put my pants on. <laughs> Those are like the dreams you had when you're in. <laughs> and it was like, a, it was a nightmare. And I was supposed to be doing something else. And the guy is, you know, I remember the guy's name. I can even say it on, on, on the podcast. His name's Mark Trustman. Mark Trustman uh, was a kid I grew up with in my neighborhood. He became, uh, a um, professional football coach, mm-hmm. coached Chicago Bears for a while, and then also won the Grey Cup in Montreal like two or three times as the coach of the Montreal Alouettes. I haven't thought of Mark Tressman in, you know, well, ever, you know, a decade or more, ever since the last time he won the Grey Cup or something. But for some reason, it was vividly in my dream. It was him and his sister were in the, in the dream, and, and, but it, had, it made no sense whatsoever. It's just back in there. In that brain, in that dream world. Yeah. Yeah, it just comes out. But why does it do that? Who knows? Maybe it... Because our, we have, a, we have a, a client, I have a client of mine that um, sees things in dreams and they actually, mm-hmm. and, and they actually advises people and, and comes true. She's very, very, I don't know what the word is, not clairvoyant, but... That's what I was going to say. What's, well, whatever, some mm-hmm. word that describes that. And so she can interpret her dreams. Yeah. Mine are just blue, blue. <laughs> right. Someone, you, you could ask someone to. So you should, we should, I'm, when she comes in for her ultrasound, I'm going to ask her like what, what kind of finance we were discussing. <laughs> no, like a finance meeting. Maybe it was a, tra- maybe it was a, maybe it was a trailer sharing meeting. Oh yeah. Cause we're going to uh, look at trailers together today. Yeah. But one more driving down to Orange County, which is about an hour from us. Tell her what kind of, I mean, when we say trailers, people don't understand. We're looking at an well, RV kind of Well, we're actually camper. looking at an RV, not a trailer. Yeah. Class C RV. Uh, can't wait. I hope well, you, you, want, you want one because you're going to take it on a, on a walkabout, right? A drive about. And I thought I'd pitch in because, first of all, you could get a nicer one if I pitch in. And That's secondly, um, so nice. that some down, down the road, I might get one. Although... People have advised me kind of like a boat, you know, the happiest day of a boat owner's life is the day he buys his boat and the day he sells his boat and everything else <laughs> in between sucks. <laughs> so I'm hoping that's not the same with a, with a, a I don't feel that RV. way when I, when I'm on these RV um, chat groups on Facebook, people seem pretty happy. You just have to enjoy it. So do you want to get to the topic? Or is there one, le- one, one more letter that you had to read? Was there, or, no, uh, I was going to read this poem for um, my little midwife uh, wisdom. Let's but, say that. Let's say yeah. midwife wisdom and dumb Dr. Dogma for, for the end. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if our soul fire people are, think we should come up with like a, a little jingle before you do your wisdom or a jingle before I do my doctor. That's their job. I know. Yeah. I'm just putting it out there. So see, we'll, we'll, see if, we'll see if they're listening. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. What do we want to talk about today? Today, we're talking about informed consent. And, uh, you know, we're kind of starting over with topics so that you guys can go back when you want to look at, at how we feel about a topic or what we're talking, what we're, we'd like to say about a topic. And informed consent is one of the foundations of our podcast. And it's often really misunderstood. Yeah. And it's often 
people people don't understand the difference between true informed consent, selective informed consent, and skewed informed consent. Because and 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 many many physicians don't practice the beneficence based model of ethics, which is to give people information and respect their right to autonomy and decision making. And the classic tenant of medical ethics that says, given the same information, it should not be reasonable to expect two people to come to the same conclusion. And yet, in the medical model, in the hospital system, everybody is given consent to try to funnel them down a path to get them to fall into the algorithm that the hospital wants them to do. Well, I think to be fair, it happens out of the hospital too. Right. I'm, okay. You're right. Yeah. I'm just saying that I, I should have said in the medicalized model, right? It happens in our model too. I suppose yeah. there are some, yeah. I mean, we don't, we all have bias. So let's clearly separate informed consent from bias. Ideally, you're supposed to put your, leave your bias at home whenever you give informed consent, but that's not possible. We're human beings. You people do the know, best you can. People know where we're coming from simply by how we practice or what kind of practice we have or what we're wearing or where we're giving the conformed consent or who's allowed in the office or whatever else. You can already tell these sorts of things. So, Yeah, but you, but you really should do the best that you can to give. Um, I, I always say true informed consent, but as we were going through your slideshow here, I realized that you're, you're, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get yeah, to it because yeah. you'd like to give true informed consent. I'd like there to just, say there I just do. aren't enough hours in the day to actually give true informed consent. Yeah. We'll get to it. So, so go, go ahead. So the definition of informed consent, there's probably many of them. The one that I use when I teach about this subtopic um, is permission granted in the knowledge of the possible consequences, typically that which is given by a patient to a doctor for treatment with full knowledge of the possible risks and benefits. So patient gives to the doctor their consent with a full knowledge of the possible risks and benefits. Now, the mm -hmm. question that I, I always wonder is, can anyone ever have the full knowledge of the possible risks and benefits? Right. And therein lies the quandary for informed consent. The quandary is a state of perplexity over uncertainty over what to do in a difficult situation. And the quandary for informed consent is, can you really give people all the pros and cons of all the choices? And you think that you do, you probably do it as well as anybody can possibly do it. I do the best I can, but you know, you're right that you you gave this example, give them the example. Yeah, I give an example. When you, when you flew when you draw blood on somebody, could you actually tell them, well, I'm going to stick a needle in the arm and draw blood. There's a chance that I could hit a nerve or I could get a hematoma that could affect a nerve that could cause you to lose your grip or maybe cause your arm to fall off. Okay. <laughs> You really make someone's arm fall off. Theoretically. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they taught they taught me that in the midwifery. Theoretically, <laughs> if someone has a bleeding disorder, oh, okay. And you don't okay. know it, and you stick a needle in their arm, they develop a hematoma that just grows and grows. Okay. I mean it's not gonna fall off, but, <laughs> but like I might never draw blood again. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or when you give somebody when you give somebody a, a lidocaine for to repair a laceration, yeah. Do you tell them that they could stop breathing? No. No. You're supposed to. Okay. So that's true informed consent. It's not possible to really give true informed consent. You have to give reasonable, or what I call selective reasonable informed consent, things that are reasonable, things that are they're possible, mm -hmm. like likely to happen. Okay. okay. The American Medical Association um, 
in their code of medical ethics, well, this is what I already, I already said this, that rational informed patients should not be expected to act uniformly, even under similar circumstances in agreeing to or refusing treatment. So that's really important. And I'm not a fan of the American Medical Association, by the way, if somebody's ever seen, I have a short little video of me getting a, a letter from the American Medical Association and just ripping it up. Um, it, it's on my Facebook page someplace. It's, it's, it makes you snicker when you see it, you know, ah, anyway, uh, because, you know, American Medical Association doesn't represent practicing physicians. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? I'm sure you've talked about it before. <laughs> yeah. It's not something that's stuck in your head. I can see by the look on your face. <laughs> no, they represent, they're, in, they're an industrial lobby. They represent uh, the industrial medicine. Only about 17% of physicians belong to the American Medical Association. People don't know that. Mm-hmm. They think whenever the news media quote the AMA that it's representing their, their local doctor. I would bet you a lot of money that your local doctor, unless your local doctor is very involved in the hospital politics or something, is not a member of the AMA. Um, it's really full of people in academia. They're the people that do it. And residents are sort of forced into the junior AMA or whatever it's called. So. Um, the AMA talks about code of ethics in their code of ethics section E8 says the patient's right of self-decision can be effectively exercised only if the patient possesses enough information to enable an informed choice. The patient should make his or her own determination about treatment. Okay. So that's, that's the old adage. Well, how do you make an informed consent if you are, don't have information? You can't make an informed decision. Right, right. right. The physician has an ethical obligation to help the patient make choices from among the therapeutic alternatives consistent with good medical practice. Informed consent is a basic policy in both ethics and law that physicians must honor. Okay, Mm -hmm. now, two things about that statement. First of all, good medical practice. Get to the question in a minute about who decides what's good medical practice. Secondly is physicians must honor, right? I can tell you that in every medical office, in every hospital, uh, in every clinic, every single day, that code is violated. Because of, because of the limited time and all yeah. that we have. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or because they're skewing of consent, because you're yeah. giving somebody information to funnel them down a path. Breach birth is dangerous. You should have a C-section. Right. And, and we shouldn't wait for labor because the cord will fall out and your baby will die. And not giving you options of other breach practitioners that could possibly do it. Or, or even telling them, yeah, telling them the risks of cesarean, mm-hmm. not telling them the risk of cesarean. Right. You, you're, you know, you're not giving alternatives, therapeutic alternatives consistent with good medical practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a, it's a real, you know, that's why I call it informed consent quandary, because it really, it really is something that we all talk about. We throw out the, the handle. I mean, when I hashtag informed consent on a, when I put something on there, it's got 4 million hashtags. Uh, yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, 4 million posts, posts or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's commonly used, but I, uh, but I'm sure that it's commonly misused as well. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Cause every time we give someone a document and say, here's your informed consent or da, 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 we need you to sign. Um, but you know, the oh, yeah, degree of which we're giving all of the information or we're using uh, bias to skew someone down a path that we want, we feel more comfortable with. And I think that, you know, from my perspective as a midwife, what I've observed and what I try really hard to avoid is letting my own comfort level come in or fear 
come into how I'm counseling somebody. Like I really want women and families to have true choice in the matter. And I tell people like, you know, if you're bleeding at a birth, I'm probably just going to tell you I'm giving you medication. But if we're, you know, if we're in a prenatal visit, we'll have talked about a lot of these things in advance. You'll have signed informed consents. We will have given you statistics. So there's a lot of time prenatally to do that. Well, and you build trust with that. Yes. And, and so then, then you already had that conversation. Right. It's different in the hospital setting where, where, you know, they, know that person. well, a person walks in and they hand them these two page consent forms about <laughs> surgery and <laughs> death. And, and what do you call it? Where you have a power of attorney for somebody, there's a advanced directive or something like that. And you're, and you, and, and you sign them. I mean, have you, have you ever bought a piece of real estate? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you read the 50 some pages that require your, your initials on them? No, that's informed consent. Mm-hmm. It's not really informed consent. Who can possibly read it? You yeah. can't possibly comprehend all of it. Yeah. yeah. Possible and it's not informed consent to give somebody information under duress either. Right. Which is what you just said. It's if they're bleeding, you're going to do what you need to do. You're going to tell them, here's what I'm going to do. And by the way, if they did say no, yeah. then you will honor that. Oh, of course. Right. Yeah. You're, you're bleeding a little too much. I'm going to give you a shot of Rogam in your leg. And they'll already know what. Yeah, I mean, I think I told a story on the podcast before about of that set of twins who the woman had a really hard time with vaginal exams, really, really hard time. And the first twin needed a vacuum because she'd been pushing for a while and she needed a vacuum. And the second twin was in a transverse or breech position that was probably going to have to reach up and get it. And so we had a 45 minute conversation while she's sitting on the toilet having contractions with her and her husband and the team and her mother who's driving from another state on FaceTime. We had this conversation and said, listen, I don't know how baby B is going to come down, but I'm going to need to possibly reach up inside of you. If, if baby B is in trouble and I'm reaching up inside you and you tell me to stop, I'm going to have to stop. And then we're going to have to call an ambulance. We're going to have to do this and we're going to have to do that. Yeah. And it could be a problem. So I need you to, to give me the ability to do that now, or we'll just transfer you now. Now it almost sounds like I'm, you know, pressuring her. Mm-hmm. We weren't, I mean, I'm, for the sake of time in our, yeah. in our podcast, I'm yeah. saying that, but I, I, I needed her to be able to say, no, I, you go ahead and do it, you know, and, and, and I won't, I won't say stop yeah. because if you say stop, then it's 2020. We, we stop. Yeah. You have to respect that. <laughs> yeah. If it was, yeah. if it was 1950, well, we don't stop. Well, I'm glad it's 2020 then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, the other part of that thing was about good medical practice. So who decides what's good medical practice? And this is a real dilemma, okay? Because you've, everyone's heard of standard of care, mm-hmm. but no one really has a definition for standard of care. Is standard of care what's standard in your community, right? in your hospital, in your state, it's in gray. your nation? It's extremely great. Mm-hmm. And for instance, if you work in a hospital, let's say that's never had somebody there who did laparoscopic uh, gallbladder surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first person to come in with laparoscopic gallbladder surgery is violating the standard of care. Okay. Right. Right. So it, it, is that, is that something that's unethical because you're violating the standard of care? Well, you're outside of the standard of care. Depends unless, who standard. Unless you're compared to midwives, but then you do things that midwives can't do. Right. So the, so the question I, I, I write in this lecture is I write, 
Is it community standards? Do the practitioners decide? Do the hospital risk managers decide what the standard of care is? Is it national organizations like the AMA or ACOG that decide? Is it malpractice attorneys who decide? Maybe they decide not officially, but certainly a lot of what is done in my profession and other professions is done because of a fear of liability. So yeah. it's, it's skewing you. And, it, and if it skews what you consider good medical practice, then it skews you uh, from giving ethical informed consent. And then also, is it is it like the insurance companies? Like if you work for Kaiser and you want to give a medication like Nexium for somebody with really bad heartburn or something like that, and they say, no, no, you can't give Nexium until they've failed Mylanta and until they've failed this other drug and until they've been in the ER throwing up so they're so dehydrated. This is a true story, by the yeah. way, okay? That they would not approve Nexium for a client because she hadn't been in the ER yet with hyperemesis. So the only way to prove it for the, this company was to, and this wasn't Kaiser, by the way, this was like mm -hmm. a, a Blue Shield or a Blue Cross, was to have the woman end up really, really sick in the hospital. Then they would approve the medication, which the whole point of giving the medication is to prevent her from going to the hospital. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's a double gun. To right. That. So um, beneficence-based ethics, I've talked about that before. All right. But conflicts of interest, this is from the American College of OBGYN's Code of Professional Ethics. Conflicts of interest should be resolved in accordance with the best interest of the patient, respecting a woman's autonomy to make healthcare decisions. Mm -hmm. And they've been pretty good about that sort of thing. They are against calling child protective services. They are against, they've come out against these sorts of things mm -hmm. that, that hospitals sometimes will threaten people with to do. Yeah. Um, the coercion is something they say should never be used. It should not. Right. Uh, let's but it see. happens all the time. Um, and then we get to... The concept, which is also a great concept, Brad Boots Taylor writes about this, uh, shared decision-making. But shared decision-making is defined as when health professionals and patients work together, putting people at the center of the, of the, uh, the decision-making process, all right? Uh, but that implies that care or treatment options are fully explored along with the risks and benefits. Again, not skewing your counseling. Different choices available to the patient are discussed and a decision is reached together with a health and social care professional. Now, there are some people who think that that's wrong, that decision, the doctor really has no rights in the decision-making process. The doctor has the right to give the information, but the decision should not, it's not a shared decision. It's, mm -hmm. it's not your decision. As the Dr. provider. Steve. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And there's, again, there's arguments going back and forth. This is what science and and ethics is all about is people debating things back and forth. There's no always an absolute in anything. When somebody tells you there's an absolute thing, it's like, that's scary to me when they say absolute. Yeah. Right. Um, Do you feel that way? What? Do you feel like it's your decision to make for your clients? No, it's not my decision to make. My decision is to give them the best information I can and then let them choose the path they want. And then I, as a practitioner, have the right to say. I'm, I'm willing to do that or I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I can support that decision, even though I'm not necessarily, I, I might not say it out loud, but I'm yeah. comfortable to myself. Yeah. Or I'll say, you know what? I think that, that, that certainly after you've gotten all the information, that's the choice you've come to. But I can't support that. So you need to go look for somebody else. Yeah. Because we do also have the right. rights to express our 
concerns, concerns and comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be practicing outside our comfort zone. Should we? Um, I think sometimes you get stretched. Well, yeah. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying we don't. Yeah. I'm saying in an ideal situation, it's it's never real comfortable for the practitioner to be in a position where they're uncomfortable. Like I, I guess that's sort of like I wouldn't um, right now. I don't think I would be attempting to do breach deliveries without you present for a while. Like that's my comfort zone. I wouldn't put someone in that position because I don't feel strong enough about my skills. Yeah, that's a pretty black and white thing, like breach delivery. Though. But that's what I'm saying. That That's where I could say, like, my comfort is my skills. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Even if the law said you could do it. I would want more training. Right Correct. Now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this isn't even a legal thing. This is this is yeah. just your, no, no, your no. comfort I'm, zone. I'm just saying I could move to another state and do breaches. Um, but you know, there was a client, um, you, you've mentioned before on the podcast, a couple of times, a client whose water was broken for five days and you know, that stretch, that was a stretch for you. And you felt comfortable because she was a medical practitioner and she was doing all of these things. But I had someone who was GBS positive, declined antibiotics and was ruptured for 80 hours. I was definitely not super comfortable, but we had probably four different informed consent conversations. Mm -hmm. And the last one I said was, I want you to understand at this point, if we do end up transporting, which this labor is going super long and it's looking like, you know, that could be a possibility. I want you to know that they could be very aggressive with your baby and they probably will call Child Protective Services. Like that was part of my informed consent at that yeah. point was because that was the reality. And I knew that I was, you know. No, and there's a good, I, good chance their child will end up prophylactically in the NICU. Too. Yeah, and I think I had that backup doctor I had communicated with and just been like, you know, my the, my doctor that was backing us um, just to make sure. But uh, yeah, sometimes I think that we are going to be stretched with those people who really don't. I mean, there's people who have uh, religious preferences. There are people who, you know, just and people who don't, and people who don't practice the way we practice, who don't give this information. When you have to transfer somebody like that to the hospital, they look at you cross-eyed and like, totally. what, what the fuck were you doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, I was honoring this patient's informed decision-making and a right of consent and refusal. Which is what we're all Shared decision-making is subservient to informed consent and refusal. All right. So, you know, you, you can choose to give information in the medical hospital model, I don't think that these doctors are quite capable of of dealing with somebody who who says no. They just don't. They don't exactly know how to do that. They say, "Well, if they said no, then you didn't consent them right." That's what they say, <laughs> right? If they if the resident comes out and says she doesn't want that done, and the, and the attending will say, "Well, let me go in there." Yeah, I had a doctor do that. Uh, somebody we know who I won't mention. Um, and, uh, my, my client didn't, was refusing pit. And eventually the doctor came in and said, if you don't accept Pitocin at this point, then I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be your doctor anymore. She was in labor in the hospital. It was so manipulative. Can, really, can, yeah. can, can, can the doctor actually do that? I don't know. You'd probably be able to answer that question. I don't know who I. would take over. If they have a hospitalist, maybe they could take over. If they have residents, maybe they could take over. I suppose it could happen, but then that doctor will probably get Monday morning quarterback. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. To know. Especially if anyone. Next complains. time, like they're especially if anyone, you. especially with anyone complains. Yeah. 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 So anyway, shared decision making is subservient to informed consent and refusal. So 
even though we may have a process where we have a dialogue with the client and I, um, and we may even disagree with it, her right for informed consent and refusal trumps my, my concerns. That's what informed consent is all about. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, directly from Hermine Hayes Klein, who is a friend of the show and, and a mm -hmm. lot of people know who she is. And if you don't, you should look her up. Mm -hmm. right. A friend of the show. Right. Okay. I like this one. Oh, you do like this one. Mm -hmm. All right, you, talk, you do this one. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's on your thing. Yeah, but, go ahead. Um, yeah, go ahead. Before a medical professional can legally touch your body, there must be a process of consent that is freely given. This is also from Carmine. Yes. And, um, and before you go on in mm -hmm. that, that's so important because how many times do I see somebody in a consult who says, yeah, they cut an episiotomy and I didn't even know they were doing it or... Yeah, he, he, he swept my membranes, didn't tell me he was going to do that. You know, that sort of thing. I mean, how many times have we heard that? There have been lawsuits, you know, where people have even said no, and they've done it anyway. I had a doctor in the hospital not use a glove and do a vaginal exam on a woman bent over the bed without telling her she was going to do anything. Right in front it of me. Sounds like this was a female doctor. It was a female doctor. Without a glove. Without a glove. Yeah, I mean this this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Whoa, that's a that's a that's a whole that's a whole podcast. That's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah, this stuff happens all the time, all the time. Can you imagine? Can, by the way, I just as a quick as a quick ten second aside. Yeah, can you imagine that been a male doctor. I mean, I probably should. That's assault. Done a complaint, anyways, because I mean, it's I assault either yeah. way, but it's yeah. sort of sexual assault if yeah. a male doctor would do yeah. that. Well, that's really weird. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, even when we even in our model, when we're somebody's coming in for their 30 week visit and they're on the table, we say, may we touch you? May Every I, time. May I, yeah. May I touch your belly? This is going to be cold or this is going to be warm. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and you give them a warning. I, 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 yeah. Right. And then there are a lot of doctors that never touch the woman anyway, because I will sometimes come in and I'll do a consult and I'll take my tape measure out. And, I'll, and they'll look at me and they'll go, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? What why are you, are you touching me? Why are you doing that? Well, I mean, like your doctor's never done that. No. No, yeah. they only use an ultrasound yeah. machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they probably don't ask permission to put the jelly on either. Yeah. Right. So the three prongs to consent that Hermine describes, she calls it one is inform, which is objective, giving direct information. Mm -hmm. Then if, if the client so wants it, then is to advise, which is subjective. It's your own personal experience and opinion. And then it's to support the decision that the patient makes, whether or not it's against your, uh, your better judgment or your own advice. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Support can look like we've talked about this before. I'll, I'm happy to support you with that. Or I really can't support you with that, but there may be a doctor down the block or a doctor across town or a doctor in two States over <laughs> that would be happy to do that for you. I can't do that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like I had somebody ask me, I was talking to a, a woman with monodiet twins, very early, 13 weeks, new consult yesterday, actually. And we talked a little bit about twin-twin transfusion syndrome, what could happen. And I talked about how I think I've had about four women now in the, in the home birth world. So about in the last 11 years, I've had four that have had TTTS. All four of them have had this surgery, which is laser surgery. There's, yeah. a, there's a wonderful uh, physician in Pasadena at Huntington that does it. So we have a local guy that does it. Some people have to travel to other parts of the country. There was a documentary about, yeah. uh, about uh, Nicolaides, mm -hmm. who I think uh, pioneered this process about going in and lasering the connecting vessels. Um, she asked me, is that something that you could do? 
I go, I start laughing. It's like, no, no, no. But we're lucky to have somebody, Dr. Chmait here in Southern California who can do that. So um, informed consent, we have three different kinds that this is what I, this is my, this is a fish finism or Dr. Stewism. Okay. Okay. Informed consent is true informed consent, which is the full assessment of risks and benefits of all options. And then I put in parentheses, is this possible? And the answer to my answer is no, it's not possible to give true informed consent. You can't tell someone when you give them lidocaine that their heart could stop beating. I mean, you could, but you can, yeah, right. But people don't, or you, or their arm's going to fall off if you draw blood. <laughs> yeah. You know? But you know, this reminds yeah. me of just like life in general, right? Because you can't know the risks of every single thing. Every time you do anything, move, leave the house, you know, No, understand. and if you did, then you'd have to listen. Then everything would be like a commercial for, for pharmaceuticals <laughs> on the, on the television. <laughs> Where the first 10 seconds would be how the wonders of the thing and the last 50 seconds would be all the side effects. Really fast. And they're terrified. Yes. They're like, what the hell? No, I don't want imagine, that drug. Imagine if we gave consent like that. Imagine if we- We, we should. We should do a skit sometime. Yeah, we should get we should get a like a surgery consent form from the hospital and just read it really, really fast. <laughs> so that it's not possible to even understand what they're saying about it. But, they, but they've done their duty because they've spewed out the, the information. Oh, God. Selective informed consent is limiting consent to those risks and benefits which can reasonably be expected to occur. This is the ideal, I think. This Probably is how most of us actually This is reality, okay? Uh-huh. And you want to, not only do you want to give the pros and cons of the choice you're talking about, but you want to give the pros and cons of not choosing the choice you're talking about. So when you talk about breach delivery, you give the pro- risks and benefits of a breach delivery, but then you also have to give the risks and benefits of a cesarean delivery. GBS. And the interesting thing about... ACOG's breach guidelines, which which were revamped last year, talked about um, giving a written informed consent about ECV and about the, the slight greater risks that, that uh, go along with a breach vaginal delivery. But nowhere in their revised breach guidelines did they talk about giving the risks and benefits of cesarean birth yeah. to that current baby, that mother, and that mother's future babies. Should it, we could add one, they could add one sentence and it would have made it honest and honorable. Yeah. And they didn't do it. Yeah. But you do it. So what did they do? They did what's called skewed conformed consent, which is bias inserted to give selective risks and benefits in order to funnel a person down a specific path. And this is all too common. So I'm going to give you guys a very specific example that applies to most of us who are providers, GBS. So the standard of care with GBS is here in America is to do a swab around 37 weeks. And if it comes out positive, then you are supposed to give antibiotics in labor. However, we're not giving informed consent. I am, but you know, not everybody is giving informed consent on the downsides of antibiotics and the microbiome and how that's going to affect your baby's, um, you know, immunity, inoculating your baby's immunity for the rest of their life. And what are the downsides to that? What are some alternatives to that? How do they manage this in other countries? In Europe, they don't even test. Why? Talking about what their risk benefits are. So um, that is a definitely one that I see very commonly in um, a traditional medical model where the woman doesn't even know what the test is. She, she's getting, her vagina is getting swabbed and her anus <laughs> and no one's even telling her why. And, and then it's like, oh, you have GBS. You have to have antibiotics and labor. That's not true informed consent. That's 
that's not actually all of her choices. And if she wanted to decline it in the hospital, what would they do, Stu? She said, I don't want GB antibiotics in a hospital birth. Well, some hospitals would notify Child Protective Services. Yeah, they would tell her that she was taking, putting too much risk uh-huh. and might, you know, her baby could be, die. And, other, hospitals, know, other hospitals might say, well, the, you know, we, we're going to put the baby on antibiotics for three days until cultures come back negative. Right. And they could, they could fight that, but then they're going to get threatened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which again, ACOG is very clearly states is unethical for a hospital to do that. And like I said, every single day in every single institution that follows a medical model is violating medical ethics. Yeah. You have any recommendations about what a doula or somebody could do in a hospital situation to um, to alleviate the, the, the well to just kind of say that ACOG's recommendations are not to course you yeah um, they could have, they could carry a copy of ACOG's recommendations you could carry a copy <laughs> of me, ACOG's we'll, we'll recommendations put, I will put that in the show notes okay okay ACOG's uh, ethics on coercion. I'll write that down. You won't be popular if you do this, but you're at least advocating. Well, give it, for your give clients. it to the husband. Yeah, that's true. Right. Give it to the husband. So that's then, a great then, recommendation. And you don't have to be the one that's going to come because you're going to be a repeat customer there. The husband, you know, maybe once or twice. Yeah. They won't remember the next time they come in anyway. Mm-hmm. But you should be armed with that with that thing about the coercion is never acceptable. Yeah, I'm feeling coerced. Right. right. Yeah. Another example that I use uh, in my lecture is I talk about VBAC bands. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this came from on my on my website on the video section on my website at the very bottom. There's a there's a young Dr. Stu <laughs> at, in Washington D.C. at a meeting. I think it was in Bethesda uh, of, of a VBAC panel that was being put together, a task force. And I asked a question about this, and I sort of said the same thing. I said it's a question of ethics and math. All right. We know that a successful VBAC carries less risk to the mother than uh, and baby than an elective repeat cesarean section. And we know that from the NIH VBAC consensus statement from 2010, that 70 to 80 percent of attempted trial of labor after cesareans will be successful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Therefore, a hospital that prohibits a trial of labor are forcing 70 to 80 percent of women to undergo a surgery that puts them and their babies at greater risk of injury. Are they beginning to inform consent? No. No. They're not. So, yeah. It's a reasonable choice. Right. Yeah. So they've, they've decided that their legal aspects or their, the people that they make rules trump your right of informed consent, trumps medical ethics. They will find a way around medical ethics and they use something called professional responsibility ethics um, to trump something called right, rights-based reductionism. It's big blah, blah, salad of words, <laughs> but blah, blah. Um, rights-based reductionism means that the, that the patient has all the rights and nobody else has any rights. And, and uh, professional responsibility ethics is something that was proposed by my two good friends working over at, who used to work at Cornell University, who are the self-proclaimed ethicists who came up with the idea that beneficence-based ethics doesn't apply to things like home birth because home birth is so dangerous that you shouldn't give people the choices that professional responsibility prevents you from, from following that because you should tell people that it's dangerous and you should not support physicians or midwives or anybody that supports home birth. And that's their ethical position. And these are the ethicists. And I, I talk about that and uh, I think the, uh, I wrote a paper on it. It's actually on my blog called, uh, 
something about the ethics of the ethicists, and I can't remember the exact title, but you can follow, you can look back and find it. Maybe I can put that in the show notes too. Right. We're going to have show notes. Well, I love the fact that, we, that we're that we going to start having show notes. Yeah. Because all great. I have to do is say it. And then Soulfire Productions, <laughs> this is a Soulfire Production. Soulfire Productions is going to go through this and pull this stuff out. And, I, and I'm going to have to send them this stuff, but still we're going to get it done. I guess that's, you know, we probably beat that yeah. subject to death. <laughs> oh, here's ACOG's committee opinion. You want to read it? Um, the use of coercion. This is from number 664. June of 2016. The use of coercion is not only ethically impermissible, but also medically inadvisable because of the realities of prognostic prognostic uncertainty and the limitations of medical knowledge. As such, it is never acceptable for obstetrician gynecologists to attempt to influence patients towards a clinical decision using coercion. How many people know that? That ACOG actually has a print. I like it. I like it. I like it. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna we're gonna it's argue just with one that. little paragraph, yeah. two, two sentences that when a hospital threatens you with that, you could basically threaten them with a <laughs> you know a legal, medical, ethical quandary that they're violating their code of ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Right. Okay. I don't, I don't know it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> you got to try. Yeah. You, I ne- try. you never know if these things are going to work, but yeah. that's okay. So that's really, I think that sort of summarizes informed consent. Let me just make sure we, we didn't miss anything. Oh, we have the right of informed refusal. Okay. Now here's the other question. All right. How do you refuse? What do you mean? Just, you say no. You say oh, no. Well, I, have a big, I have a big red <laughs> no on the screen with a, with a highlighter. Or you say, I do not consent. Be very clear with your language. I do not consent. Or no. So we talk about the right of informed consent and informed refusal, but there's another right that people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's the right of uninformed refusal. Person who doesn't even understand the things or doesn't speak your language or has the right to say no. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you may think that they're crazy. You may think it's dangerous. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. All right. You have to sort of respect what they're saying or get a court order or something, but that's sort of coercive. But I mean, if you really think that this is something you need to do, but you can't just decide for yourself that you're going to do something to someone and not explain it to them. Right. You just can't. Right. Uh, I think we go into breach. Oh, here's that. Here's that uh, podcast. By the way, podcast number 151 is one that you can look back at. Um, Subtle coercion is still coercion. That's where I talk about the lovely Cornell fellows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Our besties. Um, Just kidding. And then uh, there's one other podcast. We think we talk about this a little bit. Um, it's podcast uh, where I don't know where it went. Uh, podcast number 157. We talk about policy versus informed consent. The last incubator on the left. It was one of our Halloween podcasts, mm-hmm. right? It was about where twins got put in baby jail. Yeah, I remember. remember that one. I came at the end of that when I was coming from my birth. Um, I just want to add one more thing that I noticed here that this is a saying that I like. And people will say, well, why, why is it that hospitals don't just accept this? Why is it that they, they push their agenda, push their algorithms on patients rather than letting patients as individuals make decisions? One is they're not comfortable with it. Yeah. And two is an economic reason. Oh, yeah. Okay. And liability. And this is, a, this is one of my favorite quotes from Upton Sinclair. It's, 
it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding. So I'll just leave it at that because it really is something where I think the hospital has its financial interests, its fiduciary responsibilities, and they put them above everything else. Yeah. Okay. So that was good. All right. So I want you to do your segment. Uh, do you want me? Oh, and you yes. want to end with an upper, upper beat? Okay. So this is the um, da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> insert jingle. No, uh, we got to come up with a jingle for the uh, dumb doctor dogma segment. This was an article that came across my feed and just the headline initially drove me crazy. The headline is this. Anxiety, confusion, terror, relief, giving birth in the pandemic. Okay. I mean, come on. Why don't they just say, you know, heads exploded and dogs and cats were lying together and the, <laughs> and the apocalypse is upon us. <laughs> don't breathe. <laughs> Why don't they say that? So I just highlighted some of the parts that, that I found to be really, really um, sort of bothersome to me. Whitney Hawthorne gave birth to her second son, May 7th, in a New York hospital. Ten months later, her baby has yet to meet her paternal grandparents. Sad. Okay. This is what it's like right so now. This so is, this is the perfect example of dumb doctor dogma. Her husband was thankfully by her side after a ban on birth partners during delivery was lifted at their hospital several weeks before her time. So a few weeks before May 7th, um, husbands were not being allowed to be with their women, which again tells you how hospitals really look at birth. Um, as a medical procedure and not as a life event. Then she said, as a black woman, she said she had decided she would leave the state rather than be in labor alone. I get it. Yeah. 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 It's just not safe. Okay. I, you know, I, I, I want to say that we know that there are higher morbidity and mortality rates in, in black mothers in the United States. And people say when, when you say something is higher, even though it's awful that it's higher, you have to differentiate that from being high. Okay, Mm -hmm. they're they're not high. They're just inexplicably higher Mm -hmm. than they are for white or Asian moms. Right. Yeah. Three to four times. Right. But remember, three to four times a small number. That's relative risk is still potentially a small number unless you have to know what the denominator. Right. Right. Okay. Um, Like Mrs. Hawthorne. I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. Naomi Maduki was masked when she gave birth August 10th to her second child. (laughs) Mm. I just, just that sentence. She was masked. Yeah. Okay. While her husband was on hand for the birth, neither, neither knew the hospital would require their newborn to stay in the patient's room rather than the nursery, which is, I think is fine. Mm-hmm. All right. So actually it was a good thing. It forced rooming in, which I think was good. Her husband went home to be with their older child, leaving her to care for the baby alone soon after her C-section. Then it was a struggle getting her husband back inside the hospital due to safety concerns. <laughs> So the, all the people that work at the hospital can go home every night to their families and go out to the market and go out to walk their dog and stuff like that. But the husband who sleeps with the woman can't be allowed back into the woman's room because that's too risky. Yeah. Who thought this stuff up? Who were these epidemiologist people who thought this stuff up? Okay. There were no visitors. No friends were permitted to drop by the hospital. Maduki's mother, who lives in Texas, didn't move in for an extended stay after the baby came home a tradition in their Nigerian culture, all because of the coronavirus, anxiety, confusion, and terror. (laughs) Uh, Maduki won't soon forget meeting her baby in a mask. There's something so sad about that. 
Due to pandemic travel restrictions, her father remains stuck in Nigeria and still hasn't met her baby. This was last year, so I'm hoping that by now he has. I don't know, though. Possible not. Liz Teich, hi, hi. Liz Teich found herself doubled over in a hospital parking garage during contractions less than two minutes apart after circling with her husband looking for a spot because valet services had been eliminated. She didn't want to be dropped off, fearing he wouldn't be allowed in on his own. I get that. Does the title dumb Dr. Dogma fit, <laughs> fit this section? I thought, you know, if I gave birth in a car, it might be safer than in the hospital. She laughed. And I wrote, little did she know, <laughs> it likely would have been true. <laughs> we agree with that one. Yeah. Uh, Jen Buron in Cleveland gave birth last March to girl Gigi. Her mom who with her dad waited in the car of the hospital while she was in labor, wrote Giron a poem after Gigi arrived. It inspired Giron to write a poem to her new daughter. She turned her words into a children's book, The Baby in the Window, mm-hmm. which she self-published. Because the picture is all the babies. All the family members yeah. looking at the baby through the window. Yeah. Uh, as a way to let pandemic moms they aren't alone. There's a lot of sadness being isolated in our houses with family, without family around, she said. Since Gigi has largely known only masks on faces of others, Gian wonders if revealed faces will be jarring to her. I bet. I mean, there's a lot of people who talk about the effects that this is going to have on very young children who that's all they've known. I love my dumb doctor segment. <laughs> okay. I mean, and again, it's not meant to say that it's all doctors. This was about the healthcare system. Yeah. Right? So dumb doctor dogma means it could be dumb doctors. It could be dumb nurses. Last time was a dumb nurse. Or it could be a dumb dogma. This is more of a dumb dogma section. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. We yes. don't we don't uh, coordinate our segments, but it's such a good segue into what I'm going to read. Well, nice. So, um, so what's this? What's your segment called? Uh, mid- da, 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 da. <laughs> Midwifery wisdom. Okay. Um, and this beautiful poem was written by Matthew, who was the dad from the birth that we just, that we talked about last week. I love him. And he wrote a poem about the power of birth. And what he said was, was this after the birth or yeah, before? After. after. Okay. He says a few reflections on birth, the unimaginable fierce kindness of my beloved and the beauty of truth in praise of all mothers and a call to men. So that's kind of what he said before the poem. The headwaters of knowing and the leaving behind of all knowledge kneels quietly at the bed of the woman in labor. Beyond reach, naked, she travels agony, ripe with ecstasy. She who is destroyed completely remembered. Yet somehow returning cloaked in even greater mystery. And what is that? Cradled in her arms, what possibly could we know about this? And when did we forget? where life begins and with whom. Not the life that is a thin string of words on a tattered clothesline of thoughts, the life that is breathing, pulsing and beating that belongs to this earth. When did the thicket of chatter within the minds of men lay claim to the spaces that they have never even imagined, let alone abide within? All philosophies, religions, all songs and myths of creation, each that do not begin and end with ode to the woman as the door to this life. As the end of knowledge and the beginning of knowing, all of them, every last one, are false. All philosophy, 
excuse me, all philosophies, religion, all songs and myths of creation, each that do not begin and end with an ode to the woman as the door to this life, all of them, every last one are false. Life, as only our bodies know, it to be begins with a singular crystalline imperative. Love this woman now. Honor this woman now. Care for this woman now. Repeat endlessly. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 